Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 241. Today is Sunday the 9th of July 2017 and this interview is with Andy Abramson, who's CEO and founder of Communicano, a strategic communications agency. He's also co-founder of Velocity Growth, a strategic development and social market services company. And he's a contributing writer to Money Inc. and an acknowledged influencer in all things VOIP. Beyond that, Andy is long in the tooth in the Philadelphia Flyers ice hockey team lore, my favorite team, as well as an aficionado, an award-winning wine producer. In this podcast, we talk about growth, communication strategies, new tech, and what it takes to be a leader. Welcome to the Minter Dialogue Internet Show, where we discuss brand marketing with a focus on all things digital. I am Minter Dial, author of TheMindset.com, that's M-Y-N-D-S-E-T, where branding gets personal. You'll find the show notes on the blog for the upcoming interview. Let's cut to the quick. Enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to the Minter Dialogue. Today, um, I met this, uh, this my guest at a wonderful event called Fine Minds for fine wines and uh, Andy is someone who who tells lots of wonderful stories and remarkably we have three very common passions really I mean top of mind passions so uh, speaking for myself for those of you who know me I am a died in the world die hard Philadelphia flan um, I'm also in loving tech and um, and I enjoy my wine so Andy Abramson you are at the pinnacle I would say of all three of these tell us how you like to describe who you are and what's your mindset? I like to tell everybody that I've never worked a day in my life because I've had fun doing everything I've ever done since I was 14 years old. Starting with the Philadelphia Wings Pro Lacrosse team and then two years later being hired by the Philadelphia Flyers to develop a very arcane concept in 1976. Yes, that far back. I'm ancient. I'm old. I have gray hair. Um, but you don't see it much. But the, the Philadelphia Flyers hired me to build a program called Hockey Central. I worked with a great PR person named Cy Roseman who passed away way too early in his life. Um, but Ed Snyder, uh, who I admired from the day I started working for the Wings till the day he passed away a little over a year ago, um, had this vision of getting the kids to play hockey. And the idea was if you got kids playing hockey, they became fans, their family became fans, and that would ensure the fact that they were always as we say, butts in seats at the, the old Spectrum and now the whatever they're calling it, the Wells Fargo Center, I think, in Philadelphia. And that vision, uh, I made reality for 13 years and created a program that you know I left almost 20 years ago, believe it or not. 25 of those programs we started from 76 to 88 still exist, like the Flyers Cup High School Hockey Championship, which if anyone realized how hard it was to convince people to do something back then, to understand where we were going to where it is today with a $50 million endowment with way more kids playing hockey than there were in 1976. It would be, it would be mind boggling, but that was a vision he had. And I then took that vision along with a core group of, of, of other flyers and spectrum executives to make it reality. And we did, and I feel proud about that. So and then I moved on and uh, did other things. But hockey is still in my blood. I just watched the, the draft and followed right. it very closely and saw my old my old friend Ron Hextall. I remember when Hex used to do hockey clinics for me um, to teach kids how to play golf. One of the friendliest guys around. 
And he did really well in the draft, it looks he like. Did. So we, he, can talk, he, we can talk puck. Wheeling and dealing, wasn't he? So how would you describe your mindset, Andy? Always asymmetrical, thinking outside the box. You know, when, when, you, when you start working at age 14, no one ever really gives you the time of day. So you have to prove that you're not only good, but great. And, that all, and then when you are given opportunities, like I was given with the Flyers for 13 years to break new ground every single every single week we were doing something new and different you have to look at things differently and i i talk about asymmetrical marketing as, as defined in asymmetrical warfare you use the opposition strengths against them hannibal used the mountains to come down with the elephants george washington took the weapons away from the british and fought and used them their own munitions against them and of course one of the worst examples of asymmetrical warfare was 9-11, where uh, Osama bin Laden and, uh, used our own planes and buildings to bring down our economy in the U.S. and, and to harm life as it never had been harmed before on our homeland. So those are examples of asymmetrical warfare. When you look at asymmetrical marketing, you have to look at what the other side's doing and how you can be different. See, too many companies, too many marketers are all about me too and me also. Oh, yes, we have that. Oh, yes, we can do that too. And, oh, we can do it better. But that doesn't mean they're doing it differently. We look at clients and companies that we work with and the products and services they make. The very first question we ask is, what makes you different? And the second question we ask is, what problem are you solving? Because there's nothing worse than having a solution in search of a problem. <laughs> right. So I was reading in your uh, LinkedIn profile uh, very a really wonderful recommendation from the uh, professor emeritus at Temple, where you attended and you also teach. And he says, uh, "Well, you you are you know just full of talent, and 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 the the students always leave agog." So I can just imagine, because at the end of the day, you, you're not academically you know let's say you're a classic academic, and and you come at it like your life without the training that is brought in these typical business schools and kind of what happens in business schools is they tell you what others have done as opposed to what you need to do to be different. Does that, does that rhyme with you? That's, that's pretty true. And, and Dr. Marrow was one of my first, when I came back to college at 29 years of age after uh, running a lot of accounts for the Denver Nuggets in the NBA, I left the Flyers and went out to Denver with a good friend, John Gardner, who unfortunately passed away again, too young at 56. Uh, but it was a former pro quarterback, and as as one of his sales guys once told me at Channel 57, work for John for six months, you'll learn more about sales than you could ever learn in your life, and he was right. Um, but the team got sold, and I decided to finish my degree, and Dr. Marrow was my advisor. And um, he and another professor, Jim Shea, who was a former VP of marketing at uh, Temple University, um, were very, very good at being mentors to an adult student, which is never easy. Because, you know, we're kind of different. Plus, I was already working for Footcomb Building, their impact division, which is the seventh largest ad agency in the world. I was in their integrated marketing team. And um, Dr. Marrow was great because he'd been on the agency side of the world. He, he actually still runs an agency with his wife while he's in his 70s on the creative side and the writing. And he was very helpful to me at helping me get through those last you know, two years, junior and senior year, which I ended up doing in less than, I think, 18 months. We ended 16 months total. Um, he was extremely um, open to having a student in his class who would push him 
and not just do the assignments the usual way. Uh, I was constantly, I used to tell everybody I had uh, these steno pads as notebooks. This is before we had laptops and iPads. Sure. I had a sten- I used a steno pad. I also used a reporter's notebook. Those mm-hmm. were, most students use those big spiral bound loose leaf notebooks and they're writing right. And I had this, the secretary steno pad because they were smaller, lighter, could carry them around. And I had reporter's notebooks and between the two of them, was how I took my notes. But the thing that most teachers never realized in college was it was the front of the notes was my classwork, but the back of my notes was my work work. I even did this even earlier. And I would be doing my work work and not really like watching everything. I would just like take notes every once in a while. And I still got A's in these. Hmm. And the, the key was the professors were able to educate. Our textbooks were so clear. But the, the biggest thing with Dr. Maris, I used to always have to cut his class to go to New York to see a client or go on a celebrity hockey trip. And um, I made a deal with him that I would make up all my cuts after I graduated. And um, for the next 13 or no, more than that, next uh, 20 years, 23 years, I think I made up all my cuts on the final night when the university asked me to come in to represent 30 years of his students to speak about him. Mm. And that was my closing line. I said, Dr. Mara, I think I've now made my up my final cut tonight as we honor you for your greatness and leadership and advice to so many students. And he said, not according to my great book. Yeah. So we have a good friendship and um, it's great to have, have your mentors still be active in your life. Superlative. So, um, Andy, you are, were also for uh, over 10 years the GM of the Celebrity All-Star Hockey Team. Tell us how that came about. Well, it's what my good friend Tony Laicano was like a brother. Um, made a pitch to the National Hockey League in 1986, and the Flyers director of sales, Jack Betson, who's a good friend, comes back from these NHL marketing meetings. He hands me this binder and he says, "Here's a way to raise money for Hockey Central, which was the Flyers Youth Hockey Division." I said, "Okay," and I looked at it. And I went in to see Jay Snyder, Ed son, who was then president. Jay said, you know, if you think you can make it work, make it work. I said, well, I think I need to go watch a game and see what it's all about. So I flew to Minnesota. Uh, they were playing the, the, this was their first big game. Um, Tony was there with the team. We hit it off immediately. And, and as part of the deal of having to freeze my you-know-what off in Minnesota in the middle of January, Jay said, well, after that, go to California because you need a vacation. So I went to California, and Tony says, use my house. And we became best friends. He goes, I'm going to be away. I'm taking my wife and then two kids. Now he has four, and I'm friends with his sons, who are then two and four, and they're now all grown up. Um, and uh, we, they were at the pool at the Holiday Inn or something. Marriott, I was using their house, and then I went up to wine country, which is why you talk about our, it's a nice bridge in the wine. I actually went up to Santa Barbara for the first time and fell in love with the region. We'll talk more about my love for that region and the wine I make there soon. But the team was Richard Dean Anderson MacGyver, who many women will remember as Dr. Jeff Weber from uh, General Hospital. It was Michael J. Fox. You know, back then, his big claim to fame was Back to the Future and the TV show sure. he was doing. It was Michael Keaton, Mr. Mom, and Night Shift, who had yet to really break out, but everyone knew Keaton was going to be a, be a star. It was Alan Thicke, who unfortunately passed away this December um, Playing hockey, something he passed away on the ice doing something he loved. Yeah. Alan was part of the team. Uh, Jerry Hauser, Summer '42, Oski, Killer Carlson, and Slapshot. John Bennett Perry, who along with Jerry and Jamie Widow and 
talented helped form this team as a ragtag group of guys who were just playing hockey in rinks because they grew up playing it. And then over time, we added people like David Kelly, um, producer, writer, uh, director, extraordinaire producer, L.A. Law, Pickett Fences, Ali McBeal, the list goes on and on. David was a lawyer who became a writer and was also a darn good hockey player at Princeton. Um, his father, Jack Kelly, was a legend in hockey circles as a coach and general manager. And um, David became a good friend and played with us. And David added the David, I think, became the first really talented hockey player to step on the ice. When I say that, most of these guys just played it because they liked it. They were shot in a beer league, guys. I mean, they could hardly, some of these guys could, could skate, but not well. But David was strong enough. And we added, then we added John Saunders, who unfortunately passed away a year ago. Um, John Saunders grew up playing hockey. His brother Bernie played with the Quebec Nordiques. John was with the SPN. We added Jason Priestley and then John Better Perry's son Matthew who, from Friends. And this, Matt was like 16 coming on trips. And I'll never forget, he did an interview. And he goes, yeah, we're going to go to Philadelphia. We're going to play a bunch of these old guys. I said, oh, God, don't call them old. You're going to have, you know, Bobby Clark's going to come out of retirement. He'll, you know, he'll do what he did to Valerie Karlamov in the Canada Cup. And break your ankle if you call them old. But um, Dave Schultz might go at it with you. I mean, those were the, so we, we had this great team. Kelsey Grammer from Cheers would come on trips as our coach. Clarence Clemens would come as a coach. We had wrestlers, and so, Terry Funk so, and other guys. So the idea of this, of this was to raise money, as I understand it correctly? We raised about, in, in the 10 years that, we, we, that I was involved, we raised um, somewhere over $6 million for charity. Real money. Again, real money, not... Not this like phony money that you know people talk about. Real money into real charities. Not only Hockey Central, Philadelphia Flyers organization, Iraq. They completely sold out the spectrum. We had seventeen thousand people in the building watching the Flyers alumni play against the celebrities, and we probably could have sold the tickets for twice the price had we been smarter. But um, you know, you live and learn. Right. So, um, Annie, I want to get onto uh, your communicano business because that's uh, you've been doing that for a long time. Tell us a little bit about Communicano, the types of clients you're working with, and, and what is this working with asymmetrical marketing efforts that you, you uh, talk about? Well, clients come to us because they want, to, they want help in three areas. One is their business strategy. Second is their marketing strategy. and Third is their communication strategy. Um, we, we work with two types of companies. Startups, or we like to say early stage, which could be anywhere from two guys in a garage with an idea to a venture-backed company that has a great idea but doesn't know how to tell their story, or companies in transition. So we worked with the likes of Nokia and AT&T and AOL and BlackBerry, who know they have to make these seismic shifts. They're They're destroyers in the ocean, and they need to turn around, but at the same time, they need a little PT boat to get to do some really things early. The, the list you just said uh, seems like a list of companies in deep doo-doo, or at least Nokia, Nokia and Blackware anyway. Well, Nokia, we did in 2005. We accelerated the sale of their smartphones um, by doing communications around the blogger program that we founded for them. Um, if you think about it, Nokia ended up being sold to Microsoft and made a lot of money these days. You know, Microsoft then sold it, you know, shut it down, did their own thing. Um, AT&T, we were doing their VoIP product called Call Vantage, which was by far the best voice over IP product ever made. Unfortunately, they got bought by the guys from Texas who didn't have a clue. Um, the, um, AOL, we worked on a developer relations program. Again, corporate politics is never fun, but we did a lot of great stuff for them. 
around their aim phone line and um, getting developers involved. Uh, Rim, oh, well, you know, you really can't. Nobody could have saved Rim. They might, they might have had a good hockey team, though, Rim. <laughs> they had a great team. But we had some fun doing what we did with um, Alex Saunders and his team. But we focused on developer relations, which was the largest program of its type. So we, we were very happy to be able to support companies like that. But the more fun is the startups. That's that's you know, I've been in the startup business since I'm 14. Everything I've ever done was a startup. And so at Communicano, you were telling me before that you you don't have it's not exactly an accelerator, but you really help them get out and exit. That's sort of what I understand. I think we're the accelerant, not the accelerator. <laughs> You know, you got to put some fuel in the tank. You got to have a little additive. You got to have a little boost. You got to have a little jump. We we look at things differently. We we really look at you know what's your story. Um, how are you going to find that that real core nugget that's going to cause somebody to say we want to work with you. You know, are you the company that somebody wants to do a deal with? That's um, one of my colleagues, Bill Ryan, likes to say. When you talk about ecosystem competency, are you the company somebody wants to do a deal with? Meaning they want to partner. I hate to use these word partners as legal implications. Can they work with you? Will the combination of one plus one give you five? You know, do you have that? Will it be that that light year? type of jump where you just, you know, hit that, hit a spot and all of a sudden it's not the hockey stick, it's the whole dozen hockey sticks. So in, in, when you're looking at them, uh, Andy, you've got I, I, the three things that I'm thinking of. One is the product, the second is the brand, and the third is the personality of the individual or the individuals who are running the startup. How would you, how would you gauge these three in terms of importance? Well... I don't really worry about what the product is because it always will be made better. Um, I look at the team. Again, again, my background with the Flyers, the Philadelphia Wings, the Nuggets, even the upper deck, it's a team. And I had this long conversation with the former uh, head of Microsoft's uh, acceleration program that they were doing, Bispark, John McGrady, once. And he says, how do you pick the companies you work with? And what do you look for? And I said, it's the team. And, and we had this whole discussion around what makes a winning team? And the winning team is not about having the high score at the front of the line. And, and he said, what are you talking about? I said, it's about winning being a habit. You, know, you look for players who are on championship teams who understand what it is to win as a team, not to be a superstar who stands out in the crowd. So no individualist. You know, people say, oh, I was a great golfer, or I was a great tennis player. I go, yeah, but that's an individual sport. I was a great gymnast. Yeah. I want to know somebody who, who was on a winning baseball team or a winning basketball team, winning hockey, soccer, football, picket, but on a team that played as a team, not a unit of people who played individually. So if you're in track and field, if you're not on a relay, relay team winning, you're an individual because you win and you win or you lose based on your own performance. But that relay racer wins because the team does everything right from coming out of the starting blocks to handing over the baton. That in track and field would be a team effort as opposed to the track and field team, which has the pole vaulter, the shot putter, or the 100-yard dash winner. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And... Um... And so when you when you were working with these uh, startups you're working with, and you've got so many, you've got a really strong uh, success record. So you've, like you said, you had like 100 uh, that come through, 42 have gone out and exited, which is an enormous uh, hit rate. A few hundred. I wouldn't say 100, I'd say a couple hundred. All right. But, but still, anyway, it's still a great value. It certainly is. What is it that, 
you attribute that success to? What are, what's the key point for any of these startups uh, that you're looking at and working with to be successful? Timing. Is the product right at the right time? Is there someone who's going to buy it when you know when you start it? Uh, when we worked with StubHub, the first question I asked Colin Jeff was, who's going to buy you? And they said, eBay or Ticketmaster. They had a clear vision of who they would ultimately be annoying so much or so valuable. They were annoying Ticketmaster. They were valuable to eBay. When it came down to the final acquisition, it was eBay because it was the better fit. You, you plug their ticket resale platform right into the eBay platform. Ticketmaster, they were a big annoyance to. Um, sometimes you, when you promote a company, you you pick on the, the biggest guy in the in, in the market. You you annoy them. It's a David and Goliath approach. We've got a bunch of Davids. It's a matter of companies get bought because. You either fill a niche that somebody doesn't have, you're taking business away from somebody bigger, or you have a team that will be better at running the business than you currently have inside, or there's technology that the company has that you need. Those are the four main reasons that companies get bought. Everything else is just window dressing. You can talk about the strategic alignment and all the fits, but you know ultimately if the product doesn't exist five years later, it was because it was some IP that they had or some people you know, look at Skype. Skype's been folded in from Microsoft to the point where it's an entirely different product than it was. It's just a brand name now. It's no longer the peer-to-peer thing it was. But Skype provided Steve Ballmer a reason to talk to every telecommunications company in the world and brought them all to Seattle right after the acquisition to say, okay, guys, here's how we're going to make money together. It was a strategic acquisition because it gave him a sales opportunity he would not have had. So, and we worked with five or six companies in the Skype ecosystem. So we understood that fit. Um, you know, Boingo was one of them, which was the Wi-Fi company. Mm-hmm. Uh, when all we worked with up until the time they exited, the the fit is they went public. The fit there was Wi-Fi. Uh, but when you look at look at companies, you have to figure out, and we figured out what makes them so unique. And it's getting harder and harder these days. I'll be honest with you. I, I can imagine, because um, it's such a changing landscape. When um, you talk about these team, uh, you mentioned team is one of the four areas. How, how do you assess whether they're going to be a Travis Kalanick or a real team player? You look in their eyes. It's in their eyes. There's a fire that they have. Um, I remember when um, I wrote an article uh, about a bunch of winemakers. I was doing some freelance writing. I was doing writing as a wine critic, actually, for a local paper in San Diego. And I went up to Hospice Tyrone and I wrote about three winemakers, uh, David Corey from Core, um, Chris Cherry, who was a longtime friend in Alexandria uh, Creek, and Ethan Lindquist. And what I remember seeing about David and Chris was, and Chris was a restaurateur turned winemaker, was the fire that they had in their eyes and how 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 they the wonderment it reminded me of the first time I met Tom Petty in the music world, or met the the the, the, the Stuart Copeland and um, Andy Summer from the Police. You just knew there was something different about them. Um, you know, so I met Bobby Clark for the first time when I was fourteen. Um, you know, as we call him Whitey. Hmm. Um, yeah, there was a certain there's just something in the way they carry themselves the way they, they look, and it, it's not something which you can fake. 
it's not, you know, it's the emotional touch. So I, I look at, I look in their eyes. I look to see, are they really passionate about what they're doing? Are they looking to change the world or are they just looking to make a buck? And I'm more interested in those who want to change the world well, than so ones who make a buck. I hear you. And I would say that Travis Kalanick has presumably a lot of that fire in his eyes. Travis is great. Travis, <laughs> you know, I'm a Travis fan in a lot of ways. You know, but he doesn't I, sound like a real team player. Um, he actually, he actually is. He's he, he's got his group of people around him. the The problem that you have going on in Silicon Valley, and, and again, I I tend to be a little more resistant of of it. And I grew up in sports. I grew up in the locker room. I'm, I'm very used to bro behavior. There's no bigger place in, in, in the world other than a sports team where bromances occur. You know, it's built into the system. Why do you think when, when you become a rookie on a pro team, smart general managers pair you with a veteran? Keith Allen of the Flyers, I was, I was Keith's roommate, I like to say, for the last for a few years when after Clarkie took over, my office was right outside of Keith, so we would talk a lot. So I like to say Keith was my roomie for a couple of years, and, and I asked him once, he said, when you, when you drafted somebody, you paired Tommy Bladen with, I think it was Ed Van Ebb, what was the goal there? He goes, to make Tommy grow up faster and let him learn more. Because when you're rooming together on the road, you're, paired, you're, you're talking. And they're talking about the opposition. They're talking about their teammates. You, you, you look at, at that type of, of thing. But also, it's your bro culture from the day you step into the pros. Silicon Valley with the, the male chauvinism, the... Uh, the very, you know, very egotistical thing. That's sports and music and entertainment, and it's people trying to be a rock star. Well, Travis, in a lot of ways, has that same Rod Stewart, Mick Jagger swagger, but yet, you know, when it comes time to get up on stage and play, Jagger still, at, what's he, almost 80, still pulls the band together, and they go out and put out a kick-ass show. Rod Stewart, Bruce Springsteen, they have... There's one leader. You know that Jagger's the leader of the Stones, and you know Springsteen's the leader of the E Street Band, but they pull the team together and play. So Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, Travis, uh, you know, the list goes on and on. If you look at rock bands, Mick Jagger, Rolling Stones, Bruce Springsteen, E Street Band, Roger Daltrey in the days of the Who, there was always one front man. But they knew how to pull the band together and play. And Yes, you have Keith, and yes, you have Stevie, uh, you have Big Man Clarence, you've got a bunch of musicians in the Who, like Peter Townsend and Roger Entwistle, uh, uh, Keith Moon, but Roger Daltrey was the leader there. You, you always have a front man, and somebody's got to have that personality to do it. Also, not everybody's cut out to be in front of the, in front of the public. I've worked with a lot of CEOs who are shy and retiring. Even when you look at Jeff Bezos, he's very much in the background. He's more of a of an egghead and a nerd, and that's why what Amazon does is Amazon talks as a company, not him as an individual. It's all personality-driven. But bro culture in the Valley, it's almost like a bunch of kids who never had, who never grew up with the kinds of things I grew up with, which was athletes, and we chased women, and we went out drinking, and we partied, but we knew how to be discreet about it. Um, my 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 favorite line was from our boss coach of the Philadelphia Wings. He goes, "Most of these guys would have more fun if they would just learn to keep their mouth shut." And Bobby Allen was um, referring to one player I was so well, famous, but 
I would say, Andy, though, keeping your mouth shut is sort of one part of it. But the reality is social media has made other people's mouths more I mean, communicative. So it might have been easier when, you know, you just did, newspaper reporters were coming out with their steno pads. But now the sort of broadcastability has made life a little bit harder to keep your mouth shut. Well, the, the key is, first, even though you have a lot more social mediologists, meaning people are like the weatherman, for one day you say it's going to rain, the next day you say it's sunny, and a day later nobody remembers what you said, but they were mad at you anyway. It, it, social media has, has allowed more people to have a voice. But back in the day, we had a lot more reporters buying into things than you do today. Right. You have less reporters, less media. And a story, I like to say, reporters don't find stories. Stories find reporters. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you have to really do something. There's also a lot of um, over-sensationalism by celebrity. When you look at like Tiger Woods, um, when you look at now Bill Cosby, um, if that's the best thing people can be writing about, in, when we've got a lack of world peace, when we've got economies in different parts of the world heading uh, heading to hell in a handbasket, if we've got environmental issues that need to be tackled that are far more newsworthy. Well, than- you know, I, I, know, I was just said at the Global Editors Network with 850 of the world's premier uh, news editors. And uh, we're talking about, obviously, these are people who come from the background of investigation and, and want to join journalism because of that. But the challenge, of course, for them is, is finding the business model where people are prepared to pay some kind of dollars for a Washington Post subscription or, you know, some investigative journalism. So I had, I had Rod Norton, as a, my journalism professor, who went to cover two coronations of the popes um, and then also was for, went in and investigated the Warlocks motorcycle gang was dragged by the back, dragged on a chain from the back of a motorcycle when they found out he was a reporter and lived about, lived there. They didn't kill him. They just wanted to teach him a lesson. Mm. Um, he's now, he's now been embedded in Iraq and Afghanistan, Pulitzer Prize winner. And, um, investigative reporters like him are born, not bred. Uh, the, the number of investigative reporters in the United States today is probably, you know, one tenth of where they were when, I had 30 to 50 reporters I could talk to on a daily basis across three types of media, print, radio, television. Um, you have, you're lucky if you have a beat reporter covering a company today. Yeah. Uh, Mike Isaac's doing a real good job with um, covering Uber, and he'll go on to the next thing once it all dies down. But you don't have beat reporters like I grew up with in sports where I had five reporters from four newspapers that I could talk to on any daily, on any given day who would take a phone call, no email, who you would call up and they would shoot the breeze with you for 15, 20 minutes. And I would talk to them about things that had nothing to do with what I was doing. You would feed them information. I'll never forget Robbie Tannenbaum turned to me when I was 14 and said, because he realized I was a source because I was close to the players. He said, tell me what happened in the night's game. I said, oh, the ice cream cone play. And he goes, what? I go, the ice cream cone play. I said, it works this way, but why don't we go downstairs and talk with John Grant and Jimmy Watson, who executed the ice cream cone play tonight. And I took him down at age 14, and he would come back to me every game and say, you got anything like that ice cream cone play angle for me? And I was 14, and my boss side goes, Robbie loves you. 
of course, we also had the Jewish thing going. And, mm-hmm. you know, and again, I was like the little kid brother to all these people. Mm-hmm. But reporters back then had time. There was many of them. The newsroom was full. I used to yeah. deliver press releases at 14, 15. And I would see all these guys. I knew who they were by name. And they knew me. You don't have that today. No. So, hey, listen. You, so you, on top of everything else, you've also been a journalist. Um, being a tech reporter, you've been a podcaster, a radio show host. What What is the one technology that turns you on these days, Andy? It's a really hard question because I use so much of it every day, and I've been. I'm one of these people who buys things early on. Um, I'm impressed with a new product we're actually representing called the Zasalo, which is a wine preserver system. Um, that's because the imagination behind it is great and it really lets you protect your wine you open a bottle it saves it uh, I've been playing around with a thing called a smart unit which lets me track my suitcase when I travel I know exactly where it is um, I, I think that I'm still enamored mostly with my iPad if I could if I had if I was told you could only take one piece of your tech gear with you you couldn't take your laptop you couldn't take your smartphone what would it be? It would be my iPad with my keyboard because I can do everything on it now. I run Google, we run the company on Google Docs. Mm-hmm. Um, apps are great because they use less bandwidth in the browser. I can make phone calls over Dialpad or Telzio or Skype or a lot of other services. And most importantly, I could see people with it. So it's kind of like I would love. I wish the smaller iPad had the power of the larger iPad. So I use an iPad Pro, but that's kind of like my my favorite. Gizmo. Well, it sounds like you need it at least with a, a 4G or you know a connection to the internet. I have that. All that. So I want to finish, Andy, talking about wine because, as you say in some article I read about you, you kind of are an accidental wine expert or an accidental winemaker. So we met at Crest Day and we were talking about uh, the future of fine wines. So um, you are a uh, you have an enormous collection of beautiful wines, and you make your own wine. So tell us exactly how you fell into that uh, juice. So everything happens because of you know circumstance. Just like how I ended up uh, in sports at age fourteen. Uh, a good friend of mine, Doug Kaplan, met Bob Lindquist of Coupe and Jim Clendenin of Albon Clamat in at Aspen Food and Wine, in like nineteen eighty nine. And they came to his house when they were in Philadelphia on a tour. And Doug's, and we're, Doug was part of my drinking group that we had a Friday lunch crowd. He goes, hey, Bob and Jim are coming in. I go, Bob and Jim who? And he tells me, okay. And so I come out to his parents' house and meet them. And a few months later, I'm living in California, and I go to a wine dinner featuring all of Uncle Mont, and I get to see Jim. And he goes, hey, now that you're living out here, you can come to the winery more often. And I go, sure. He goes, well, call it Santa Barbara. Okay. So I came to Santa Barbara, and he goes, you're going to meet a friend of ours named Doug Marjoram. You guys are about the same age, because Jim and Bob are a few years older than me. And he goes, you and Doug are going to get along great. And he was right. And Doug Marjoram became a really good friend. He, he was a young restaurateur, making some wine, selling wine, putting on the Santa Barbara Futures Tasting. His wine cask restaurant was great. And one day, Doug's really got his own winery. And um, I was I organized a trip with a bunch of friends from work and from Skype and a few other places. And it was Saturday and my wife was with me. I was married then. Um, there was a, a group of us went the next day on Sunday to make wine with Doug Marjoram. So we all made wine and Doug goes to everybody. If you want us to know how to make a blend, taste Andy's. And then they did a whole blind tasting and mine came in first. 
So I made half a barrel that year. It was a 2009 uh, Syrah with a little bit of Grenache in it. And a friend of mine in France, Bernard Bardieu, took the bottle we gave him and organized a blind tasting. And I figured it was against the cooperative down the road and the fledgling winemaker he knew, but it wasn't. It was against a bunch of 2009 French Syrahs from people like Gaillard, Augier, and Chapoutier. And just like the judgment of Paris, came in first. And Were you there? I was... I wasn't there. I was I, I was not there to influence the wine or the decision. As a matter of fact, the Gaillard rep voted for the Communicado Double A Cuvée, Communicado Wine Company Double A Cuvée, first, thinking it was the Gaillard wine. And Bernard told us the story. I was in Madrid with my good friend Tatiana at the time, and I was just like blown away that here's this wine that we threw together. And, that, and actually, the wine that we made that that weekend, we had to make over because the juice ended up in Whole Foods wine. So Doug and I made another wine. We actually made three, and we figured out which one we wanted on a Sunday morning after his birthday. And um, a couple of years later, made another one. And that one, Doug had Jason Barrett as his assistant winemaker that summer. Jason is best known as the assistant winemaker of Penfolds Grange. Uh, he recently left Penfolds. He's doing his own thing now. So every wine has a story. And since then, I've uh, made um, five more wines, I think. Yeah, five more wines. Uh, some of them just got put in bottle uh, this week. And so I've now made wines in 9, 11, 2, and 13, including 100% Grenache, which I love as a Grenache ambassador. And then another one in 15 and 2 and 16. And it's fun. I mean, it's all because of that accidental meeting with Doug Marjoram in 1991 and friendship of 20-some years and, you know, also a good friendship with Salon Padat in Mont Peru in the Languedoc, who has given me a lot of instruction. I'll go into his cave with him and we'll taste individual parts and components and blends. So I, I've had that good fortune of having winemakers as friends and now it's fun to leave the world of just being a wine lover to being a winemaker. So um, maybe taking inspiration from what happened at the Fine Minds for Fine Wines uh, with Nicole Rollet and the gang, um, what do you think needs to happen? If you're a winemaker today in order to survive in, in this world of tech and the world that we're, you know, crazy time, you know, small attention spans – and, and trying to figure out how to get pierced through the noise. What, um, what, what advice or what kind of thoughts are going through your mind for, for wine marketers or winemakers? Well, there, there's two things. One, the whole direct-to-consumer market is going to change over time. More and more winemakers have to have that direct relationship when they can with their customer, especially fine winemakers. You know, you know regular wine that you buy at the grocery store, not so important, but... Fine wine requires a relationship between the customer and the winery. And I, I break it down to the three T's plus two more T's. you got to taste, touch, and tell. You have to taste the wine as a, as a consumer, as a buyer, as a psalm. You have to have some affiliation with the winery. I mean, you have to touch the winemaker in some way, or they have to touch you. You have to visit the winery. You have to go to a wine dinner. You feel closer. You have a deeper affinity between the brand, the bottle, and the, per and the buyer. And third is you have to tell a story, just like I can tell a story about 
the first wine that Doug and I made where the first one ended up in Whole Foods and we had to go back up and make another one, you know, and figure it out on a Sunday afternoon, which Sunday morning and afternoon, which we did, um, you know, or the second one with Jason or the third or the fourth or stories of you going to a winery, like you went to Chen Bleu and you can talk about the bucolic environment, how you get the modern winery and the wonderful family that owns it. Everybody has a story around the wine so they can tell it and that helps propel it. Well, I've added two more T's to taste, touch, and tell. And those T's are travel and technology. Now, travel's a two-way street. The winemaker has to get out of the winery and travel. They really have to. They have to go do more, more dinners and more visits. And as I was telling some winemakers this week in the Roussillon, if you don't come to the U.S. to sell your sweet panniels, it's not going to sell. If you come and you put your charm behind it, it will. And the last one is technology. Technology is no longer a strange and foreign thing, whether it's social media or using technology in the vineyard or using technology in the, in the cellar or using technology to track your customers. Wineries, winemakers have to embrace technology. They can no longer just think of themselves as, you know, agrarian farmers who happen to make juice that has alcohol in it. It's a serious, serious thing. Technology is changing the wine world and will change the wine world even more. Everything from drones to sensors in the vineyard to what's going on. And once you put the technology in place, you can then travel more to touch more people so they can taste more wine, so they can tell more stories. And that's how the five T's work together. Beautiful. All right, Andy, we have had a wonderful rollicking. We should have had a glass of wine over, even if it was virtual. Um, although it's great fun. <laughs> so early in the morning, Victor. Yeah. I, I tend not to drink before noon. Oh, well, it's coming soon. It was past these times, we used it's to say. Soon somewhere. Um, and how can someone uh, follow you? What's the best way to contact you or get in touch or follow you? On Facebook is, I think Facebook has become my... Uh, easiest way of being found and followed um linkedin you know, everything's andy abramson whether it's twitter facebook or linkedin you can go to winescene.com and read about my wine exploits you can go to andyabramson.com and occasionally read about my technology exploits or you can just hang out with me at some wine event and drink wine like we did in, in the beautiful Chen Blue. and share hockey stories all right andy thanks for coming on the show continue and have a lovely day thanks mentor Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue Show. You'll find the show notes on themindset.com, that's mindset with a Y, where you can also sign up for my weekly newsletter at forward slash subscribe. If you like the show, please do rate it in iTunes, that really makes my day. Happy trails, and enjoy Josh Sachs's Painted Fingers. Oh, fill me with all your colors any different way. Rid me of the grave and heal me with all your imperfections that you mention in your lack of self security. Oh, I wouldn't care about the art form as long as you would feel warm, wrapped in canvas. Hold me.
Welcome, change agents, to your go-to place for stories that ignite your spirit, fuel your purpose, and connect us all. We believe in the incredible power of the human spirit, its boundless resilience, and the inspiration it brings to our lives. On the Driving Change podcast, we'll journey together through the extraordinary yet very relatable experiences of some of the most amazing people on earth. Our mission? That through these stories, we might just spark change within you and awaken a newfound motivation to harness your unique gifts to make a real difference in the world. So get ready to be inspired and join us on this incredible adventure. You can find the Driving Change Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you love listening to your favorite podcasts.